Hello everybody, thank you so much for tuning back in to The Moments That Made Me with me, your host Roxy Nafusi. I just wanted to record a little message for you all. Everything that is happening at the moment with COVID-19, I know is leaving so many of you feeling really uneasy. Um, I've been getting a lot of Instagram messages over the last couple of days where you're kind of just expressing how anxious you're feeling. Some of you are having a lot of panic attacks, just feeling really uneasy. And I guess it's the fear of the unknown, it's economical issues, you don't know what's going to happen with your work, with your income, and of course a complete change of life. We are inside more, I mean inside almost completely, with only seeing a handful of people, if anyone at all. I really want to help you guys uh, with your emotional well-being, of course. So I'm going to be doing Instagram Lives, which I will announce on my Insta stories soon, the exact times. But I'm going to be talking about things like uh, how to keep fit and healthy, how to deal with anxiety when it arises, how to make the most of this time for really like self-development and make it into like something positive so when you come out of this we're going to feel incredible we're going to have done so much inner work and we're going to come back fit and healthy and mentally strong so I'll be doing Instagram lives and on top of that please subscribe to the podcast because every week I'm going to release a five to ten minute bonus lockdown self-isolation uh top tips basically so it'll be things to keep you feeling positive and feeling emotionally and mentally well so i hope it helps some of you all of you please do rate review and subscribe to the podcast it really really helps everything that we do here and i'm sending you all lots of love and positive vibes This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hello and welcome back to The Moments That Made Me. I heard about this week's guest through a friend and I couldn't believe how fascinating, transformative, inspirational and quite frankly unbelievable this man's story was. Michael Maisie is an author, actor and motivational speaker and I'm so excited to be sitting down with him today to hear about his three defining moments. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for coming in today. Privileged to be here. Thanks. So usually we just kick straight into it Mm -hmm. by asking you what your first defining moment that got you to where you are today. Um, For me, I would say it was getting sober, which was the uh, 15th of December 2007. So I was 25 years old, um, had used alcohol and drugs all my life to... um, just to help me get through um, and you know eventually through a lot of pain and battering myself for 25 years I um, yeah threw the towel in so yeah I'd say that was like the founder I, I started laying proper foundations in my life when I got sober so what got you to that point because I mean getting sober is not something you just do overnight was there for you a rock bottom that pushed you to the edge where you went right this is it this is Mm. the time I have to absolutely change my life around. Yeah, well, you know, I'd had lots of real serious rock bottoms before that, like so many, like suicide attempts, you know, spent most of my teenage years in prison, locked up in a cell for 23 hours a day, Um, you know. But in the end, what really got me was just being so sick of just scraping along the bottom of life, just, just barely surviving and making ends meet. And I just got so sick of that, you know, and and that was what done it to me. You know, when I look at all of the rock bottoms I had, I had so much worse rock bottoms, so many moments where I should have really been like, now's the time you got to change. But in the end, it was just like the mundane existence that really just, just got me. I was like, I'm so sick of this now. And so that was it. Yeah. Had you tried to get sober before that? Yeah. Yeah. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 18. So I just finished my third stint in prison and got released when I was 18. And um, that was what I'd done. I went to an AA meeting because my mum was like three months so- sober. So at 18, you'd already been in prison three times. Mm. Yeah, I got released just before my 19th birthday. And um, on my last stint inside, my mum got sober. And um, and she was, all you know, when you join like a fellowship and you're, you're turning your life around, you're excited about it and you want to, you know, spread the message with of the world course. and save everyone. And I was the first on her list to save. She was <laughs> like, I'm, you need to get sober. And I went to an AA meeting when I was 18, just like, oh my God, what a fucking waste of a Friday night this is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I, and I was, I think the nearest person to me in age was like 32 and right. I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. What am I doing here? This is a waste of time. But I went really, I didn't want to like steal my mum's excitement around it. She was really happy. And I really wanted her to be sober as well. I'd wanted that all my life, just one sober parent. Um, So yeah, that was like my introduction to it. And then spent from the age of 18 to 25, like just trying to figure it out. And in the end, just, you know, throwing the towel in and just going to meetings and getting a sponsor and doing this 12-step program. 
did you know on that date on December 2007, did you know then that that was the time it was going to work? No, not at all. I was just known as the guy who relapses. Right. It was like, if you could put a bet on who's not going to make it in this room, <laughs> I would have gotten it. The odds would have been on me. Because I was just known as a guy who would get sober for a bit, who'd go out, fuck his life up and come back like wounded unemployed with a black eye yeah right <laughs> and what what were your drugs of choice it was you know i over the years i tried everything you right. know like when i come out of prison the second time so there's a lot there's a lot here to unpack like when i come out of, i went to prison just before uh just after my 16th birthday and i spent most of that most of my teenage years in the prison cell right but when I come out of prison the first time, I really didn't want to go back. So I was like, you know, I need to go out. I need to get a job. And then I went I went for loads of jobs and just got loads of people like, where have you been for the past, you know, six, eight months? And I was like, I've been, I've been in prison. And, you know, it's pointless lying because it's all there. So when they ask why and I say attempted murder, you didn't get the job. So, you know, when I went, I went back to prison shortly after and, um, and when I come out of prison the second time, I just didn't even try and get a job. I just went straight back to my community. And I was like, well, how are we making money? Everyone was um, selling crack and heroin. And that was my thing. I, I was like, right, let's do it. I'll sell crack and heroin. And I was just like the worst drug dealer ever because I'm an addict. I just took all my own, <laughs> my own supply. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get high yeah, in your own supply, exactly, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we'd have to rob other dealers or people to pay the, the, debt, the debt back. But the, the 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 story here is that I went back to prison the third time, a fully blown heroin addict, like fully blown addicted to heroin, because I was just wow. taking it every day. But it's such a short gap; it was only like a two month gap because I'd get released from prison straight away the day of release. I'm back involved in crime, so I was like two months of selling crack and heroin, not not doing it very successfully, and then um, and then and then nicked and then put back in prison. Um, and would you get clean in prison? Yeah, so I'd done I'd done it um, when I went back to prison. I'd done quite a controversial detox, which is banned now. But it was this seven day detox which I used to do, which basically is like just flushes you out, you know. And um, that was where I had my first suicide attempt. Was um, was doing that detox. It was like just, I can only ex explain it as like hell on earth, you know, Ooh. hot one minute, cold the next minute, like visualizing snakes and spiders going up the wall and then visualizing them under your skin and then flashbacks from moments of your life, um, you know, just, it's just like hell and, and every minute seems like an hour. And um and yeah and I just I just was like I, I can't do this. Yeah. So you know on my first, the first time I went to prison, there was a kid who committed suicide, and I was really baffled. How how can you commit suicide in a in a cell? And so we figured it out. And so I knew how you if things get bad, you can commit suicide in your cell. And I knew how. And I knew, so you always sort of had that in the back of your yeah, mind, like an sub, escape route, yeah, literally. Yeah, subconsciously, it was there as like, you know, if things get really bad, that's that's always a way out. And, you know, that's what I'd done. You know, on my third attempt, 18 years old, ripped up the bed sheet, rolled it up like a Rizzler, one, one bit round the bars, the other round my neck. And I remember when I'd done it, I was like, 
I'm bound to fuck. It's going to take me two or three times because I'm so <laughs> fucked up right now. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to get this right first time. I'm probably just going to like fall flat on the floor. And um, and yeah, it just it, I tied it so perfect. I'd rolled off the bed and it like jerked me up. <gasps> and and you know, straight away you go to pull it off. It was like you want to die so badly, but then when you're there, it's like you're trying to pull it off. And then um. You know, I just hung there and, you know, passed out. And then, I, you know, just by the grace of God, the, pres- the n- there's a night guard on everyone on, on this hospital wing is detoxing from some sort of drug. And the night guard has to do a lap of the wing every couple of hours. And, yeah, he just started on the ground floor on the right-hand side of my wing. If he had started at the left-hand side or on the first floor, I'd have been dead. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was yeah. So he come in, opened the little flap on the door, and then come in, cut me down, brought me back to life, and then yeah, just and that was it. They put me in a padded cell, and I stayed in a padded cell, a tiny little padded cell for like two and a half weeks. And is that where you don't see anyone? Well, they allowed my mum. They allowed my mum to come and visit me, um, and that was like one of the defining moments for me because. Um, where I found out my mum was sober for the first time. <clears throat> you know, they called my mum up. And yeah, you're not allowed to see anyone. You're just in this padded cell. But they called my mum up and said, look, your your son basically nearly died. It might be worth coming to see him. And, you know, I went out to the visiting room. I didn't get many visits from my mum because obviously my mum was an alcoholic. She got like three other kids. Um, and so when she came, I sort of hobbled out to the visit like completely broken like I still had all bruises around around my neck from where I tried to hang myself and um and I sat down and you know my mum was just you know like I didn't want to tell you until I was serious about this but you know I'm three months sober and um I just burst into tears in this visiting room which the visiting room in a prison is normally a place where you everyone is acting tough they want to show the outside world this place hasn't broken me i'm running this joint blah 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 all this mm-hmm. you know macho bullshit but in that moment i just was a scared little boy who wanted his mum. it was like the one thing i always wanted was one sober parent and um and yeah and that was like a little moment for me of like maybe i'm not this tough guy that i'm presenting to the world maybe there's something else here and so, yeah, that was like one of the moments that really sort of um, just got me curious to thinking, you know, maybe there's more to Michael than than what I think. So, yeah. I mean, so you've said your first defining moment is at 25 getting sober. But yeah, before all of this, mm-hmm. I mean, you've been to prison three times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to go back to touch on, on that first time um, mm, in sure. a second. Um, your mum's got sober, something that you've always wanted, mm-hmm. attempted suicide and been saved by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Um, this is quite a life at just 25. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure people that have tuned into this podcast are going, oh, wait, did I hear that right? <laughs> so I'm going to go back because you yeah, sure. said that the first time you went to prison was for attempted murder. Mm-hmm. And do you mind talking us through that a bit? Because I feel like I can't just skip over. Yeah, so I think... 
for you to understand that story properly and for the li- listeners to understand it properly, I need to give you like the context of what life was like growing up. Yeah. You know, we grew up on Ivory Bridge Council Estate in Isleworth. Um, you know, we lived in one of the tower blocks. You see, we had like neighbours above us, below us, either side of us. Everyone was broke. You know, all of the kids there growing up, primarily all of their dads were either in prison or they weren't around. And so, you know, we grew up, although we had like this this mad community spirit, we was predominantly like the blind leading the blind. You know, like our father figures were the older kids in our community who were just hustling and selling drugs. And, um, you know, so we all fell into crime really young. And the problem was is that every now and again, there would be a rugby game on at Twickenham Rugby Stadium. And if you've ever been to Twickenham Rugby Stadium, you see them big tower blocks. That's the tower blocks we lived in. And so every now and again, you'd have loads of rich white men. And I say white men because most of the the kids in my community, I was only one of the few white kids. You know, most of us were mixed race or, or black kids. So every now and again, you'd have these rich, wealthy white guys turning up, really drunk, sort of rubbing our face in how little we had, really. You know, and so you grow up being quite alienated to people that have a lot, have nice cars, have Mm. things. And it builds like this resentment against people who sort of have things that just seem way out of reach for people like us. And that's really what led up to the attempted murder. I mean, I got convicted of armed robbery, possession of firearms when I was 15. I was one of the youngest armed robbers in London. And um, I narrowly escaped prison because my... um, my solicitor basically brought it up in court you know I'd experienced physical abuse sexual abuse I was all over the radar of like social services they was like look you you lock this kid up look how much he's been for already so I narrowly escaped prison but then um, two weeks later it was a rugby game in Twickenham and um, we was all out and it was always a bad night for us rugby games because we were a group of like young predominantly mixed race and black kids uh, amongst loads of rich, white, drunk rugby fans. And so we stood out like a sore thumb. And, um, and yeah, one of one of my mates um, got racially abused. Someone said a, a racist word to him and a fight broke out and um, the rugby fan who racially abused him got stabbed in the throat and the face about 20 to 30 times. And, um, yeah, we was all arrested and because I had the conviction for armed robbery already, they said, you know, um, either you, you tell us who done it or you're both going to prison. And so, like, the code of the street where I grew up is, like, you don't grass. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm not going to grass up my mate. And that was it. That was my first stint. I just turned 16 and uh, was sent to the murderer's wing. I felt my young offenders. I'm quite speechless. Thank you for your openness and honesty. How does it feel thinking back to that time of your life? Does it feel real? It's so so worlds away from mm. where you are now. Yeah, I mean, that little boy is still a part of me, you know, and he was just a lost little boy who wanted love from his dad, mm. you know? Like, my dad was a heroin addict. He died last year of a heroin overdose. You know, and like, that's what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted a a positive male role model to be around, to guide me and, and to, 
to mentor me and to tell me he's proud of me. Um, and in the absence of that, I make my own conclusions up about the world and what men are and what role men play. And predominantly what I learned from my community is men are angry, unpredictable and violent. And if I'm going to survive in this world, I have to be angry, unpredictable and violent. Otherwise, I'm going to become a victim to other men. And so, you know, if you peel the layers off of all of that, underneath is a scared little boy who just wants love. Of course. You know, um, I had to find some compassion for him and give him the things that I never got. Yeah. You know, the compassion, the love, the tolerance, the patience. And just allow myself time to heal, time to forgive myself and time to do work on myself so I can break the cycle so my kids don't have to go through the stuff that I went through. And that's like the work of, you know, I've been sober 12 years now and and it's took me, you know, all that time to really, you know, get to where I am today, you know, um, and break the cycle. And that for me is like probably the greatest achievement of my life is that my kids have never seen my their dad drink or use drugs Mm. my mom was an alcoholic my dad was heroin addict Mm. you know my dad you know the blueprint i got from dad was when things get hard you leave you know i got 15 brothers and sisters from my dad you know and what what i learned was from him you know when things get tough in a relationship just leave and get another one pregnant and so then that was another thing i had to figure out is like god how do i do relationships because the blueprint given to me was that any sign of difficulty you just leave just bail yeah you know like and so like this is a you know it's been so much learning over the years i thought you know getting sober would just fix it all and it was just the tip of the iceberg you know parenting also played a massive role in that as well because i had no dad around to model parent what parenting looked like and my mum was an alcoholic so emotionally she just wasn't available yeah of course so, you know, so many layers of, of growth and so much learning. And that's why now, you know, I think it's my, and that's why I do what I do now, really. I feel like it's my moral obligation to, to, to run these workshops, run these retreats, to just help men, um, you know, figure this stuff out. We're here to tell you about the Loose Lips podcast. Me being Georgie Porter. And me, Samira Mighty. We are all about honesty and not holding back, especially when it comes to what's in the news. Plus, we answer your questions and give advice wherever it's asked for. Even when it's not asked for, we're all about what you're really thinking and what you really want to know. You can expect to hear a little bit of this. Darling, this is all fake. Well, how kind of idiot? A little bit of this. Why am I obsessed with dating shows? I've done every one of them. (laughs) And of course, a bit of this as well. Who? the hell yeah did this get them now that's the loose lips podcast out every monday and not forgetting the bonus extra lippy on thursdays find it wherever you found this podcast we'll see you there bye flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow, what a first moment. We kind of, we've gone through so many moments within that one. So shall we move on to your second defining moment? My mind wants to sort of do this in chronological order <laughs> after getting sober, but I feel like maybe I shouldn't do it in that way. I mean, the, the, I'm going to go with the first thing that, that popped in my head, which was the day I married my wife, Sasha. Oh. That was the first thing that popped in my mind. And... Um, yeah, you might have to excuse me if I get emotional. I always get emotional when I talk about my wife. That is so sweet. Yeah. Um, we got married on uh, on the 26th of October, 2018. And um, yeah, it was just one of them moments where I was like, I had to pinch myself that this, that this had happened to me. Because for all my sobriety, I didn't understand intimacy. So I would meet someone who I really liked they would get close to me, I'd feel fear and I'd want to run. Mm-hmm. And so it prevented me having any proper meaningful relationships with someone from the opposite sex. Luckily, when I met Sasha, she was just clued up enough to sort of not make it mean something about her, but to say, look, I know there's something real here. Why, when we get close, do you want to run? And then that was my work. I had to go away and figure out why do I want to run? And then when I looked back at, you know, I suffered pretty horrendous physical and sexual abuse from a family member growing up. And what I learned as a kid was that the people you're meant to be able to love and trust in your own home are the ones that normally hurt you the most. So then it's no coincidence that I meet someone who you're meant to be able to love and trust and she wants to get close to me and I'm feeling afraid. Mm. and so you know I and all I had to do it was funny I thought how am I going to figure this out this is such a mess and um, my therapist at the time was just like um, I want you to just bring that mess to her and so I just told her I said look in these beautiful moments when I should enjoy it and we should be really happy and you want to get close to me and experience intimacy which is just a cuddle on the sofa something as simple as that Mm. I feel fucking terrified. I want to run because everyone who got close to me growing up as a kid hurt me. And yeah, it was like she burst into tears and she said, you know, I sort of spent a bit of time thinking that maybe you weren't attracted to me anymore or something like that. And in that moment, we had intimacy. It had nothing to do with sex. It was like I'd brought all of me, she'd brought all of her and both of all of us was welcome with each other. 
And that was like the sort of one of them moments of set the bar of, of where we're going with our relationship. Um, how much of I, how much of me can I bring to her? Like mm. the darkest bits that, that I'm ashamed of, the, the bits of myself that I hide and repress and deny. Can I bring all of that to her? And I have done, and it's been painful. It's been uncomfortable. But um, once you're in it, it's like, God, why do I resist this so much? Because mm. once I'm in it, it's actually like, God, it's just lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. And then getting married, we'd been together sort of seven years. We've been It'll be nine years this year. And um, it was just like, yeah, I've, I'm marrying a woman who knows everything about me. And... Um, she hasn't rejected me. I have goosebumps. It's, <laughs> it is so beautiful. And once you went to her on the sofa and you brought yourself to her in that way and you told her, how did you then start to unpack all of that? Mm. A lot of it was like me going away and doing work on myself. And what was that for you? Because I talk a lot about um, inner work and people mm-hmm. always go, what does that mean? But mm. it means something different for everyone. Mm. So for you, what does what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, for me, I had to figure out intimacy. Like, I spent a long time convinced intimacy was sex. Mm. I was like, that is intimacy. When you're having passionate sex, that's intimacy, right? <laughs> 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 I know. And then it, it's funny because then if, if we weren't having passionate sex, I was like, she don't love me then. You know, that's right. how confused I was. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, like intimacy was sex, sex was love. Right. And what I realized was is that I had it the whole way around. Intimacy was, if you break the word up, into me see, letting you see into me. Yeah, like all, I love that. All, all of the, into the darkest chambers of my heart that I don't let anyone. Yeah. And when I let her in there, then we experience intimacy. And, and I feel when I let her in and she sees it all and she doesn't reject me, mm. I'm like, shit, maybe, maybe it's not true what my head tells me. Yeah. Because my head would always tell me, if, yeah, if she knew all that stuff, you know she'd reject you. Right. She'd think you're so fucked up. I can't mm. be around you. And then when I open up and let her in and she doesn't reject me, I'm like, maybe that voice is wrong and maybe I can trust. Maybe yeah. this is a safe place and maybe not everyone is going to hurt you. So you literally had to prove that negative voice wrong. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways I did, yeah. But doing it wasn't easy. It was terrifying. It takes a lot of courage. It was terrifying, um, yeah. Yeah. How, what do you think gave you that courage or bravery or was it that you just realised you would lose her if you didn't? I think, you know, I had the, I, this is what I've always been great at throughout my sobriety is like being humble enough to go and learn. And mm. I basically humbled myself to go to a company called Clearmind International who's run by a man and woman, Dwayne and Catherine O'Kane, who had their own, who were both really qualified therapists who had their own relationship problems, figured them out and set up all these workshops to help other relationships. Mm. And so I was just like, okay, I'm having relationship problems. Where do I go? And these were just the people who just were like right there in front of me that other people had used. And so a lot of this I owe to them because they just really educated me on all of this stuff. And so, yeah, it was a lot of this was like me dipping my toe in, getting it wrong, saying to Sasha, hold fire. (laughs) Dwayne, can we have a Skype session? (laughs) 
mate I've done this uh, you know because I would like go into it thinking I had it right and I'd do it all wrong you know I'd start you know conversations off not with I statements stuff like that and it would in like some ways point in the finger and so I, my whole communication everything the language I used um, had to change I had to stop speaking from the head and start speaking from the heart which is a really easy term to use but actually try doing that in a in an intimate moment with your loved one it, yeah uh, it's, it's, it wasn't easy for me no it's powerful and I think one of the things that you've done and one thing that I always talk about in relationship is owning your own shit mm. I always say that to people like recognize what's yours mm. and what's um, what healing you need to do for yourself mm. that always has to be number one you know really nothing is about the other person Mm. It, it's all about you mm. and what you're doing and how you're perceiving things and mm. if two people can heal on their own then together they can heal as a couple mm. yeah 100% I agree yeah give 100% of your 50% yeah exactly <laughs> I love that I love that so what is your third defining moment pops in my mind the first thought I'm going to go with mm -hmm. is um, is my daughter Sienna so I've got two daughters but I think Sienna, was, it, it was slightly different because Sienna is mine and Sasha's daughter. Mm -hmm. And so she lived with us and I, every day, you know. And Connie, my eldest daughter, uh, me and her mum had a very brief relationship and then uh, but resulted in a pregnancy, which, mm -hmm. I, you know, Connie's great. I love her so much. But I think um, it was a diff very different experience when you're living with the child every single day mm -hmm. so I think that would be my third defining moment is I had to learn so much about parenting which I didn't know I remember when um, when the kids got to like the age of two and they was you know what two year olds are like they don't want to do what you ask them to do <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know the only solution I had was the solution that I had growing up, which was violence. My mum would just smack me and hit me and unless I'd done what I was told. And I remember at the time, you know, I've never hit my kids, mm. but I went and sought out a parenting therapist and was like, I need help because like when my daughter, when I asked my daughter to brush her teeth and she says no and she throws a toothbrush on the floor, my head just tells me to hit her. Mm. And... I don't want to hit her, but I don't know any other alternative. I don't know the lang what language, what, what do you do in that moment? Right. What do you actually do? And I remember the, the therapist, <laughs> the therapist was like, Michael, I really honor you for coming and sitting here and own this. He said, most people yeah. in your position would just probably repeat the same old patterns. Yeah. And so he gave me loads of tools. And I remember one of the tools was he was like, so imagine she's a fire. And you're a fire blanket of love. And you're going to put the fire out with a big hug. And I was like, you're joking, right? You are having a laugh. I'm paying all this money for that. And he was like, and then he explained us the sort of the science and psychology behind it. He said, until children get to the age of six, they can't, they don't have the internal mechanisms to process their emotions effectively. Yeah. So all you need to do is be a fire blanket. Just put the fire out with love. You know, they're just acting out because they're probably feeling happy, sad or something, and they don't know how to communicate that exactly, or process yeah. it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to give it a go. And I really thought, this is this is bullshit. It's never going to work. And so um, the next time it happened, I, I got down to Sienna's eye level and I looked her in the eye and was like, what's going on? 
you know, do you want a little hug? And she just laid on my shoulder and cried. Oh. And I was like, it was like this moment where I looked up and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it's worked. And I felt this joy. Mm. But I also, when I went to bed that evening, I felt this sadness. Mm. For all the times I was a bit naughty like that and I just got a whack around the face, oh, you know? Yeah. And so this journey of learning how to parent effectively, I've learned so much. Mm. But the the sort of theme through all of it has carried a lot of sadness for me because yeah. it's a reflection of all the things I never got growing up was just that uh, patience and compassion, you know, which I think when you've got a one, a single parent who is dependent on alcohol mm. isn't able to give that they just don't have any space for it you know yeah, of so course. i mean that's such a oh that's such a lovely story and i mean it's fine. i've got a lot of nieces and nephews and i'm obviously a parent now but wolfie's um not quite at that age yet mm-hmm. they they have so many emotions and mm. they just don't understand how to process them and my heart like i know i will not be a very good disciplinarian <laughs> because my heart is just like they don't get it and i think watching children grow it absolutely it does bring back so many memories of of your own childhood and kind of you grow as they grow mm. don't you it, it is such a beautiful thing that you do together with your child mm. yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah and you definitely have to be adaptable to everything at, at any moment but there was a good book i read called uh, raising girls by steve bidolf yeah and he has different chapters on different age groups Right. Yeah, and it Raising was like, girls. yeah, it's like, um, and they, he's also written another one called Raising Boys. So you could get that, I'll get that. For a wolf. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good thing to refer to to know that, like, okay, they're at this age. This is what they need, mm. and that some time in this age group they might revert back to the previous age of what they need, just to check that that is solid. Right. And so that's just a smaller. I've read lots of parenting books, but it's like you know it's just been such a learning curve for me parenting really has i think when you can do the work to heal Mm. and to be humble and to accept help and to learn and to really try your best not to pass on things that you were taught as a child Mm. i think it's so powerful and i think it's such an important message to be spreading to all parents parents to be Mm. um to everyone I, i will add though that i can blame I, you know, I don't blame them for everything, but it, how I was raised definitely played a massive part. But I think if I was raised any differently, I certainly wouldn't be where I am in life today. Of course. You know? No regrets. Like, um, so if I'm going to blame them for that, I have to blame them for all of the good stuff I have in my life as well. Absolutely. You know, because if I'd have been raised the way I think I should have been raised, I wouldn't feel such a need and desire to help other people. You know, and I wouldn't have all the knowledge that I have to pass on to help other people. So they've done a lot wrong, but in a lot of ways, look at where I am in my life. You know, they've done a lot right as well. Of course. And I think that that's why I did this podcast is because what I was finding was when I was speaking to people their stories a lot of their defining moments are their rock bottoms it's their tough times it's the times where they felt completely lost that there was no hope and then they found that strength and it changed them and Mm. it changed them to get them to this incredible place and um, you know that's that's exactly it you have to love all of you the good and the bad and the dark and the, the bits you're ashamed of and the bits that you maybe sometimes you wish never happened but really every single moment got you to where you are 
even now I have times I'll be out on my land and you know and there's no planes there's no trains there's no traffic and it's just me and the sun and the breeze and it's like how did I get here (laughs) and I'm and I'm only 37 or 38 this year so yeah I mean it's surreal really you know and this life certainly was not written for me I should not be sitting here I should be dead or in prison really statistically Mm. so I do have to pinch myself sometimes you know and I think this story and and all the gold that I've learned it has to be passed on you know I can't just ride off into the sunset send the kids to private school and, and live happily ever after I need to go back and go to prison schools detox clinics you know and help that's my that's my duty now until the day I die to save as many lives as I can I have a huge smile on my face. It is, it's so touching and it's, um, it is so beautiful and so inspirational. And you are doing such good in the world. Before you leave, I have mm-hmm. 10 quick fire questions for you. Sure. First question is your most memorable book? Uh, Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. It's the first book I ever read in my whole life. I read it when I was 25. I'd never read a book until I was 25, ever. ever no. No way. Yeah, it's the first book I ever read, yeah. How long does it take you? <laughs> Ages. <laughs> My first two months of being sober. And that was quick for me. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's a powerful book. Yeah, my first sponsor, Sean C, who he, he, I write about him in my book, actually. He advised me to read it. And yeah, mind blown. Your favourite quote? Um, there's a quote by Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, mm. um, saying... Um, it's along the lines of all you should try and do is is inspire others that they can be whatever they want to be and that's what I try and do is I'm not trying to inspire people to be like me I'm inspired I want to inspire you to be the best version of you that's amazing and and I think you are doing just that um your most influential mentor my I would say that was Sean C so you hear about him in my book um you know, I was a skinhead English fella getting sober in a Catholic area of Northern Ireland. <laughs> and this man saw past my accent and, and you know, my lack of religious beliefs. Oh, hi, and, Sean. Uh, yeah, and he helped me get sober. And, uh, you know, without him, I wouldn't have got sober because I, I just couldn't trust men. Yeah. But, but he was an old Irish man who came and... He must Save have been one day. of the first, was he one of the first sort of men in your life then? Because yeah. I suppose a male mentor for you must have been quite something because you hadn't had that growing up. Yeah, yeah. My relationships with men were all negative. You know, they always ended in violence, you know. Um, I was physically and sexually abused by a man. And then my dad weren't around. And then my other relationships with men were police officers and prison guards. So, you know, trusting men was difficult. Um, but Sean could see how difficult it was for me to ask for help. And so he offered his help to me Mm. and I just took it. And, um, you know, he took me through the 12-step program and to this day, I've never had a drink or a drug because of his intervention. Yeah. Um, Your go-to feel-good film? Forrest Gump. Oh, great one. Love Forrest Gump. Yes. (laughs) my favourite film of all time. Um, A moment where you felt most proud? Um... When I, in 2014, I got a letter through to say the Metropolitan Police and the London Borough Hounslow are hosting an award ceremony for people who've made contributions to their community and we'd like you to come along. And I thought, 
this is a bit of a wind up for <laughs> someone's winding me up. What do they want me for? <laughs> An ex-arm jobber. <laughs> um, but it was because I'd set my business up in, in my community and I was doing lots of motivational stuff in family offenders and helping lots of young kids turn their life around. So I got invited into this award ceremony and I won an award for being a community safety hero. And the award was presented to me by the chief superintendent of the Met Police, Carl Busey. And um, it was like a surreal moment of like, wow, I've really changed. I'm getting an, <laughs> I'm getting an award from the chief superintendent, <laughs> you know, and my relationship with the police was so negative growing up. They were just like the enemy. And, you know, that was a moment to me where I just saw a man in front of me who was just doing his job. And I was just trying to do, you know, live my life and provide for my family. So, yeah, that was that was a proud moment. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> a song that cheers you up. Well, actually, there's a few songs, actually. Do you know, I'm going to be really cheesy with this, but I love Fairy Tale in New York by the Pogues. Even if I hear that now, and it's not Christmas, I still, <laughs> you know, love it. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. Oh, if you're feeling down, play that. Yeah. Top tip for dealing with stress. Breathe. Mm. Just breathe. Oh, my gosh. It feels so good when you get it's into just, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it. Just breathe. I'm massive into breath work, all different types of breath work, you know, cathartic breath work. But, yeah, just go and take 10 deep breaths. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. It works. It works, yeah. Okay, your guilty pleasure. I got a really sweet tooth. Mm. Ridiculous. It's it, it's actually ridiculous. Is um, it quite common for addicts to become sugar addicts, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And I think, you know, for years you get used to having a certain amount of sugar in your blood from all the alcohol. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then you want to replace it. But it's been one of them things that sort of, I don't, I don't have a really strict relationship with it but I don't have an overindulgent relationship with it. But at times like Christmas, mm. you know, I can find myself just sitting with a box of celebrations and <laughs> and I just have to be like, Sasha, take these away from me. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, okay, the first three things you do when you wake up. I, always, I ask this question because I'm a morning person and I'm obsessed with yeah. morning routines. <laughs> yeah, so we get up early in my house. We get mm. up at 6am and the first thing I do is I go up and get my daughter Sienna and I carry her. I know she's sick, she's getting heavy. I won't be able to do it much longer. <laughs> but I carry her and put her in our bed and we have a little cuddle and a little Aww. chat and stuff like that. And then, you know, I get up, say some prayers, always ask my higher power. You know, I'm not a religious man, but I do believe in, you know, a God. Say some prayers, ask for a sober day to be a good man, a good dad. And um, a little bit of gratitude as well. And then, you know, go up and have breakfast with my family. I think that might just be one of my favourite answers for that. <laughs> that sounds like a really, really good morning. <laughs> one thing you'd like to achieve in the next year? Um, so I'd like to sign book deal number two. So Pam McMillan, my publishers, have published my book. Um, I've already said, you know, just need to work, build the platform a little bit more. And we've got book number two coming out. So... Yeah, fingers crossed it should all be good. We're filming this weekend, one of my workshops. Um, so that might be on TV soon. And if it is, then I'll have the platform and then, you know, I'll have book number two, fingers crossed. Uh, my last question for you is who is the first person you'd call to share good news? I think I know the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be my wife, my beautiful wife, Sasha. Yeah, he's like my best mate. Yeah, I just, I, you know, don't have a massive friend circle. I think it's really important to have that inner circle really tight yeah and solid um so yeah she'd be the first person i'd call 
tell her straight away, yeah. Sasha, you sound like a truly wonderful woman. Yeah, she's a ledge. You'd get on with her well, Rob. Yeah, I think I would. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today and for inspiring so many others. And I'm sure I'm going to be hearing a lot more from Michael Maisie over the next few years. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.